Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Today, I have with me Professor Ipek Demir. She teaches diaspora studies at the University of Leeds in the UK. Her work sits at the intersections of the fields of diaspora studies, ethnopolitics, race, and identity, global south, indigeneity, social, and critical thought. She has published several articles and books. Most recently, she is the author of the monograph titled Diaspora as Translation and Decolonization, published this year with the Manchester University Press. She joins me today to talk about this wonderful monograph. Hello, hello, Professor Demir. How are you today? Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to this exciting project. Thank you for initiating it. Thank you. As always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book? Thank you very much. Um, so uh, the book is called uh, Diaspora as Translation and Decolonization. And um, I wanted to write a theoretical book on diaspora. I have researched uh, Kurdish and Turkish diaspora for over a decade, uh, done fieldwork. I'm a sociologist. And uh, I had plenty of articles written about this topic. And whilst there are some very interesting, uh, highly valuable conceptualizations of diaspora, I found it. Uh, I found some of the diaspora theorizing limiting at times, or at least inadequate, uh, when analyzing my own research and data. So some of these existing theories, um, theorizings were great, and they of course make many inroads and so on. But I kind of wanted to write a book on diaspora, which kind of could tackle the issues uh, that I noticed, both conceptually, but also um, as a as a kind of offering various tools for people who are carrying out diaspora research uh, themselves. And in my discipline of sociology, for example, there are two approaches which are dominant. One of them uh, is led by Cohen and Safran, and I call this the ideal type approach. And the other one is hybridity approach, which is led by people like um, Baba, Bra, Clifford, Gilroy, and Hall. And I think both of these traditions have made uh, extremely important inroads uh, in our understandings and conceptualizations. But in the book, I identify um, some of those, um, some of the limiting aspects of these uh, theoretical positions. I can say a little bit about those limits or uh, I can let you <laughs> ask a bit more. Shall I say a bit more about those? Uh- as you would like, that's that's fine. Yeah. So basically, the ideal type approach, um, this is kind of a, a definitional or kind of identifying key characteristics type of approach. And in sociology, we typically use Weberian ideal types. And Cohen uh, uh, and Safran have kind of uh, done this with diaspora. For example, they have definitions that says there is dispersal from an original homeland, often traumatically to our more foreign regions. Alternatively, there's expansion from a homeland in search of work, 
in pursuit of trade or to further colonial ambitions, a collective memory and myth about homeland, its location, history, and achievements. So these are, for example, some of the points that Cohen makes in terms of trying to define and identify key characteristics. And I think it's really excellent that and they have made extremely useful um, kind of, they have cemented the foundations of diaspora research uh, in sociology and social sciences in general. But it has some consequences for uh, diaspora research. And one of them is the methodological problems uh, that ideal types have. So it's not specific to this, but even with labor and uh, bureaucracies, for example, his understanding there can be quite limiting because ideal type constructions, what happens is that researchers end up having to assess, measure and fit the world into the ideal type features and characteristics that they have uh, um, identified initially. Um, and when when it kind of almost clashes with the world or there are differences, then, um, then it is argued that they don't have a general validity. They don't need to be derived from empirical data or aimed towards it. Instead, they say that ideal types start with abstraction. But this might my problem here comes into place that it can put a lid on reconstructions of these abstractions. And they are kind of rarely uh, visited and they can be quite conservative or reify problematic constructions. So th there are these sorts of kind of empirical methodological uh, issues there. But, uh, but with diaspora, for example, diaspora discussed as a Weberian ideal type, even though the definitions and key characteristics are really fine-tuned and um, we have ended up, for example, sometimes them being too loosely constructed, for example, Brubaker, uh, or too strictly conceptualized, for example, Safran's uh, discussion or key characteristics uh, identification. So it then becomes quite limiting. Um, they are limiting their use for empirical examination. Or, of course, identifying key characteristics means that it fixates diaspora. So it becomes very difficult to account for social change and transformation. So key characteristics of diaspora are problematic because they kind of lack a temporal dimension. And related to that, then, of course, we have the problem that, um, that I had, perhaps, that um, the, recognizing the relevance of diaspora today one of the very important aspects for me is how diasporas decolonize the new home and the home left behind. So this is quite important. And uh, that it's one of the things that diasporas do. That's not the only thing. And not all diasporas do, but we do see a lot of examples of diasporas doing this. And I think it needs to be analyzed. And so it makes it a bit difficult to kind of make inroads. The other approach, the hybridity approach, it also came about in 1990s. So it seems to be interesting in 1990s, we had this kind of revival of um, diaspora theorizing and conceptualization, and it has kind of multiplied uh, since then. And we even have uh, scholars who talk about there's a diaspora of diaspora research. So there's a diasporization of the uh, diaspora research. This approach um, focused maybe less on who's a diaspora or the key characteristics and so on. But in, in rather, uh, they focused on processes. 
certain subjective uh, experiences of diasporic groups. And it is argued that um, some of the scholars who are kind of put together in this group, they very much valorize fluidity, hybridity, conviviality, creolization. And that's why I called it diaspora as becoming. In the first group, I called it diaspora as a being. Mm. And, um, and I think by deploying such understandings of diaspora, and I think from uh, literature studies and so on, there were lots of excellent interventions and there were like interdisciplinary understandings emerged. And, uh, and at least in sociology, we, it, it was quite important because such uh, fluid and anti-essentialist understandings of diaspora helped also think about race and ethnicity and nation uh, in a less essentialist way. So through, through discussing diaspora, we could almost de-essentialize uh, some of these other uh, fields, race, ethnicity, and nation. And um, I mean, I, I do have a few criticisms of this uh, tradition as well, because maybe we at sometimes there is an like over focus on diaspora as a halfway house. Sometimes I talk about the tyranny of in-betweenness, that diasporas are kind of most often conceptualized in this kind of in-between place. Also, um, this saying that diasporas are hybrid, how much do we really gain in identifying that diasporas um, are hybrid? The, if, if all cultures are hybrid, we don't learn anymore by identifying a hybridity uh, aspects of diaspora. So I'm not denying hybridity exists, but for, for the social scientists, if, identity, if identities are constituted and negotiated and other cultures are always in process of hybridization, then centering discussions of diaspora and hybridity doesn't take us as far as I'd like to go, let's put it like that, and, and can make difficult, uh, quite difficult. Um, so I, I gave some examples from Claire Alexander and uh, Said, um, you know, about how discussions of cultural hybridity makes it impossible to sustain maybe subaltern cultural formation, or that Alexander talks about how uh, focusing on cultural practices and identities meant that we were doing this at the expense of social, economic, and political accounts and stripping it of this transformative potential. So these are the kind of things that um, uh, influenced and made me rethink, made me think about how can we um, kind of improve uh, and take diaspora research uh, further. So I wanted to go beyond these two dominant approaches. Yes. And... Um... Uh, you have answered this question uh, in, in, in a more abstract sense, but um, to come back um, to the title of your book, you're trying to bring together diaspora studies and translation studies. Why bring these two together to counter the, the two types uh, that you have identified diaspora as being and diaspora as becoming? Um, thank you very much. Uh, um, I think the short answer is that um, by using some of the conceptual tools from translation studies and focusing on the decolonizing role of diasporas, we can challenge some of the shortcomings I discussed earlier. So I'd like to unpack both, uh, if it can uh, be helpful, please. So I want to rethink our understanding of diaspora uh, beyond these dominant understandings and make 
theorizations of diaspora more relevant for understanding contemporary global order. So the, I uh, was introduced to translation studies. It's funny, I came to through science studies and looking at Kuh, Thomas Kuhn and incommensurability and all those sorts of debates. And I found it a fascinating um, discipline. Of course, it's not my discipline. So in a way, I'm raiding translation studies, but or or if I put it a bit more in a pleasant way, I'm using some of the insights of translation studies um, to um, expand the boundaries of diaspora, um, understandings of diaspora. Because if you think about it, both translation and diaspora are about communication and interaction across borders, but they're also about interaction across differences and hierarchies, right? So it kind of brings those two, th two things together. And uh, I, um, I talk about, for example, rewriting concepts from translation studies, foreignizing, domesticating. These are concepts that are borrowed from translation studies. And I'm arguing that these can be um, means through which diasporas can intervene they can aid decolonization, they can leave a mark, and, and that's why I kind of borrow these concepts to push the thinking in diaspora studies. Um, I mean, people have kind of um, discussed what rewriting and, and so on and so forth is, but what's interesting is, if you think about it, um, in translation studies, translational practices of diasporas, we can unpack the creative ways in which diasporas carry out renewal, rewriting, another very important concept from translation studies, erasure and transformation, and also explore how diasporas deal with authenticity, right? Authenticity being authentic to the culture or uh, the original source, both issues in translation studies. So there's both gain and discovery, but also loss and erasure in both diaspora and translation. And um, I mean, there are lots of kind of very interesting concepts from translation studies. For example, Kamchetti talks about, uh, you know, argues for opaque translation. I mean, he's talked about how we should leave Aboriginal names of trees and fauna in order to remind the reader they are reading a translation. Or for example, Gansler has talked about partial translation or mistranslation. Or Tomosko has talked about the compensation approach. That is how translators could make up for difference or ignorance by offering explanations and background. And, um, and there's even White's uh, work, for example, the virtue of not understanding. <laughs> so turning moments of not understanding into spaces for learning for the other. So there are these sorts of very interesting concepts for uh, from translation studies so i don't use translation as a metaphor for diaspora i'm more using the insights of translation studies concepts and interventions such as these to um, as conceptual tools to conduct and make sense of some of the uh, empirical um, you know the, uh, uh, empirical data i've collected and from field work and i hope that it will be useful for also other researchers. But there's the other one that I also focus on decolonization. So, so the book doesn't just look at translation, it also looks at decolonization. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, yeah. 
No, no, please go on. Please yeah. Go on. So I wanted to focus on this decolonization role of diasporas because it's not always properly um, acknowledged because diaspora is geared towards transnationality, right? But despite this transnational promise, diaspora research, at least in social sciences, in sociology and politics, it has often got trapped in what we call methodologically nationalist perspectives. So what it means is that diaspora research got trapped in discussions, which to some extent uh, make uh, uh, use nation-centric understandings, vocabularies, and discourses. And typically, for example, they see diaspora, it emerges because there is ethno-political struggles within a nation state, and then there is push factors. So something happens within a nation state and thus people have to move. But of course, you know, we need to understand diaspora, in my view, within the context of uh, empire. And, uh, and in fact, I mean, diaspora theorists have uh, discussed diaspora in the context of empire, but the empirical research has gone the other way. And, uh, and therefore, these methodologically nationalist approaches have brought a lot of spatial and temporal limitations. Temporal limitations because the links between empire and diaspora have been erased. There is spatial limitations because the transnational reach of diaspora has ironically been curbed because we're only linking diaspora back to homeland. <laughs> and um, but, but if we think about it, it is empires which have governed various populations, myriad ethnic and religious cultural groups, and through plantation, indenture, colonization, expansion, settlement, slavery and many other forms of domination and movements of people, empires have been instigators of diasporas and many of today's diasporas were made in and by recent empires. For example, collapse of Ottoman Empire, uh, we have Kurdish and Armenian diasporas, you know, what happened afterwards as well. Austria-Hungarian Empire, we have Slavic and Jewish diasporas. British Empire, we have Afro-Caribbean and South Asian diasporas or from French empire, for example, Arab diaspora, or also African diaspora. So, so many of today's diasporas are an outcome of historic relationships arising out of subordination and colonization and of expansion and retraction of empires. Yet diaspora research has still ended up being too tightly hemmed into the history sources and understandings of nation state. And sometimes also in hybridity, which I also uh, question. And, and, and the central of the uh, argument of the book, therefore, to some extent echoes other familiar positions rooted in, for example, we have decolonial and post-colonial uh, interventions to understanding migrations and diaspora. There's Mabelin and Turner's recent book, for example, on uh, colonialism and migration, really excellent. There is also Ranabir Samadar's The Postcolonial Age of Migration, another excellent intervention. And, and like them, I see migration and diaspora as rooted in colonialism and empires. And, um, and therefore, however, I kind of follow on and then say, not just in our thinking of uh, how diasporas informed, what they are an outcome of, we need to also think about how diasporas can dislodge 
decoloniality uh, in the global north, for example. And I mean, I can say a bit more about that. That's the decolonial aspect, I suppose. But we need to first understand the colonial background and empire background to be understand uh, to be able to understand the decolonial. Yeah, and this is precisely what I come want to come to now. Um, uh, your claim that the 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 theme of diaspora. Um, as uh, decolonization enables this dislodging of coloniality in the global north. Um, how does diaspora decolonize? Thank you very much. Um, so uh, I think it's really nice to follow some, uh, from the previous uh, this conversation we had. So I'm saying that we need to see that diasporas not only have their roots in empires, excuse me, <clears throat> they also throw up issues in the metropole, because they seek to undo the racialized hierarchies entrenched in empires. So we can see them as primary agents of decolonization of the global north. Do all diasporas do that? No, I'm saying it the other way around. That's one of the roles that diasporas play. And in our conceptualization, we should also acknowledge that. So in a sense, what does it mean uh, to kind of understand uh, diasporas as decolonizing um, or dislodging coloniality. I think we need to challenge North-centric understandings of migration, diaspora, and also ethnic diversity, because these North-centric approaches, they are often unable to see others, for example, the colonized or racialized diasporas as sources of ideas and concepts. They fail to recognize that racialized diasporas in the global North through their struggles, have actually conceptually and practically expanded ideas about equality and freedom. How? Well, through their uh, interventions and challenges to the global north. But typically, when their struggles, for example, Bristol bus boycott or uh, some of the various uh, movements I list uh, in the book, what's interesting is uh, in the global north, this is kind of seen as their struggle. And rather than how uh, they were uh, sources and originators of ideas and concepts of freedom, of dignity and equality in the global north. So they've, in a sense, expanded the global north and brought those concepts to the center. Just like, for example, think about um, anti-colonial or uh, movements or anti-slavery movements, they don't just <laughs> expand the rights of uh, slaves, but what they do is they expanded our understanding of equality, right? So it's a similar way that I'm saying with diasporas uh, do that. So women's movement, working class movement, or disabled movements. So these movements, we accept that they have expanded rights, freedoms, and dignity for us, for us all, um, and we kind of acknowledge, don't we? So even if we are not working class or a woman, we can acknowledge women's movement have extended uh, understandings of equality, freedom and equality. So I'm, I'm saying that uh, diasporas also have resisted and fought discrimination, well, poor conditions, unequal treatment, racist practices and laws. So, um, so the anti-slavery movements, rebellions, you know, they have also done this, and Gopal talks about them, of course, uh, uh, in her book. But this is also a struggle that their children uh, can continue um, and are still continuing on. And, and I do give examples in the book, um, but 
but in my um, publications after the book, I also picked some of these examples, Brownwick Dispute and Bristol Bus Boycott. And actually I discussed them uh, in much more detail, also bringing an intersectional lens. And um, yeah, so in a sense, therefore, uh, my concluding mark perhaps for this question would be that we need to diaspora research needs to move away from methodologically nationalist discourses which reduce diasporas to their homeland politics and therefore forget to um, or overlook how diasporas have intellectually and practically expanded ideas about equality and freedom so they are almost instigators of ideas of freedom and equality they are not just purely receivers uh, of that yeah. thank you and uh, if we could now move from um, uh, from the general public to the academia, um, and I'm quoting um, your, your, uh, uh, quoting from your book here, uh, you write that the issue is whether or not academic scholarship will expand its existing categories and explanatory mechanisms and shift our understanding of diaspora from the mere stories of hybridity, migrancy, super diversity, and cosmopolitan sociability to accounts that make the role of diaspora central in foreignizing and decolonizing the global north. Could you elaborate and unpack this quote for us a little bit? Yeah, thank you very much. <clears throat> That's a really nice uh, uh, point you've uh, caught there, actually. So in there, actually, I'm saying, in a sense, two things. So one, one thing I'm saying is that there are plenty of examples of the kind of roles diasporas have played. Now, uh, the issue is for um, academic literature on diaspora, at least in sociology and politics, that they need to make the shift to recognize this role of diasporas, amongst many others, of course. I'm not saying that's the only one they do. And we need to pay attention to it and research it, do field work and shift conceptualization of diaspora. So that's one angle of that quote. I suppose in that quote, I'm also um, a little bit attacking maybe the uh, hybridity uh, tradition, but I'm kind of trying to say, look, diaspora should not be reduced just to homeland politics, methodological nationalism I discussed, or neither should it be reduced to hybridity. I do take some issue with the over-focus on hybridity or, you know, like those lots of research on valorizing migrancy, super diversity, cosmopolitan social, uh, sociability, and so on. There's a lot of focus on this in diaspora research. Now, I'm not saying, you know, these are okay. I'm not saying let's forget these. I think this is very important that we recognize it. But overly focusing on these, the diaspora studies, the field, have also forgotten how diasporas are agents and agents of uh, change. So I, I would like to construe them as authors, as makers of modernity of our contemporary globalized world. Instead of kind of thinking, oh, there's globalization, therefore there are diasporas or modernity. But we need to kind of see them as makers of modernity around in our contemporary kind of globalized world instead of merely an outcome of globalization of modernity. So, um, yeah, so I don't want to kind of trap diasporas uh, somewhere in between homeland and the host, uh, purely in discourses of hybridity or, or 
like I said, a tyranny of in-betweenness and, and cosmopolitan sociability. I think their impact is uh, more radical than these. And it's important that we uh, recognize it and make uh, account for it in our conceptualizations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if we could now switch a little bit to the research methods, uh, you conducted interviews with the Kurdish diaspora in Europe um, to talk about and elaborate how uh, Kurds translate and decolonize. Um, how were these interviews conducted? How did you reach out to the participants? If you could give an example of some of the questions you asked and also your major findings, that would be very helpful. Um. Thank you. Um, so in the book, I do give, uh, I don't kind of study them as a case study, but I do talk about uh, kind of South Asian and also Afro-Caribbean diasporas and um, some of their resistance and the decolonizations they brought. But um, like I said, since the book, I've also written um, and looked at these case studies, at least two of them in much more detail. But in my, in the book itself, I um, also um, have a chapter on Kurdish diaspora uh, in Europe. And that's because, as I said, for over a decade, I've carried out fieldwork on Kurdish diaspora. And I wanted to kind of combine my empirical findings with some of these conceptual tools from translation studies and the decolonial perspective that I kind of discussed earlier. Yeah, so the book... Uh, one chapter of the book also provides this analysis of Kurdish diaspora in Europe. Um, I uh, kind of, uh, I was able to recruit uh, uh, people through uh, existing collaborations with existing uh, connections, uh, sorry, from previous research uh, and various community networks. I mainly carried out semi-structured interviews uh, with over 100 uh, Kurds. I um, tried to speak to Kurds uh, who actively revived, constructed, and maintained, and thus, therefore, who were very much concerned about translating Kurdishness to others. So that was the focus of the research. So I didn't just talk to um, anybody. I kind of tried to talk to people who actively revived, uh, maintained, and translated Kurdishness. And in my in the interviews, I tried to uncover how the uh, how Kurds, or Kurdish struggle and culture was translated to, first of all, non-Kurdish people. So especially to the host community, and then I was also interested how um, this was translated to Kurdish audiences, especially uh, how Kurds translated Kurdishness and. Um, uh, ideas about Kurdish struggle to their newer generations, so Kurds who are born and raised in Europe. And uh, in the interviews, I ask questions such as, you know, what do you say when a British person says, where are you from? You know, do you say you're from Iran? Or do you say I'm from uh, uh, Kurdistan in Iran? You know, um, I ask questions such as, um, you know, how did you learn about the Kurdish struggle from home? Uh, how I asked, I tried to kind of see if they interrupt and correct other Kurds, if you disagree with them about a Kurdish issue. I, um, I was also kind of interested in what Kurds didn't talk about, what refrained from telling others. And I think that's an important aspect of uh, translation um, as well. 
I was interested in, um, for example, there's a Republic of Kurdistan in Mahabad, right? I'm kind of interested if this information, this knowledge, which is sometimes erased from modern understandings of Iran, is it communicated? How is it communicated to newer generations? Um, or, for example, Iraqi Kurds, you know, how do new generations of Kurds in Europe, I'm interested in how they find out about the Anfal genocide, um, how is it passed on and so on. And, um, yeah, these sorts of things, I uh, by asking these sorts of questions, I try to uncover um, how Kurds translate, how they decolonize, if they do, how they... Um, and why do they do so? So I'm not interested in just what, uh, but why they say they do. And uh, participants, for example, were asked to discuss. I said, I asked them, you know, did you correct and interrupt newer generations or other Kurds or people in the host community? I mean, there's lots of things going on in Iran at the moment with uh, the, quote, Iranian woman being killed because of the headscarf issue, as you know. And, uh, for example, there's a big pushback because uh, this from the Kurdish community, because the woman who was killed was also Kurdish. She was a Kurdish Iranian. And, um, and for example, they have launched a campaign saying, say her name because they are using her Iranian official name, a name uh, but not using her uh, Kurdish name, a name that she couldn't use uh, in Iran, uh, in official papers, uh, at least. So, uh, yeah, so I'm interested in these corrections and interruptions to both new generations, but also to the host community that uh, Kurds undertake. And I mean, previously I had in my research, I had talked about, for example, how Kurds undertake, quote, these are some interesting concepts. I, I talked about how they undertake ethno-political tuition. So there's some overlaps with that sort of research or, or how they do this ethnic entrepreneurial laboring. There's a lot of laboring involved in this sort of teaching and interruption. I talked about diasporic cosmopolitanism of Kurds and also de-Turkification strategies of Kurdish diaspora. So de-Turkification doesn't mean uh, de-Turkying it, so they are still connected to Turkey perhaps, but they don't want to reproduce uh, dominant hegemonic uh, um, negative discourses about Kurds uh, that are sometimes produced in Turkey, so they challenge that, and I call this de-Turkification. Yeah, so in the book, therefore, I identified three, in terms of findings, I identified... Uh, you know, I, I looked at rewriting, how they rewrite, how they undo colonization, um, how they do both foreignizing and domesticating all concepts, conceptual tools from translation studies, of course. And this, this yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please finish your sentence. Yeah, I mean, um, for example, in terms of rewriting, I identified that uh, when Kurds talk to uh, their newer generations, they talk about dignity, rebellion, uprising of oppressed indigenous groups. But uh, to Europeans, they talk in a way that deploys more human rights language, focusing on suffering. Uh, so to their own community, Kurds are presented as agents and doers, whereas to all European audiences, they are presented as victims. And in a sense, um, I don't kind of say, 
say that this is duplicitous. You know, for different audiences, we talk differently. Even to our bosses, we talk different to our children. So, but it's important this notion of rewriting from diaspora, uh, sorry, translation studies uh, to see how uh, Kurdish diaspora did this because they are trying to make it plausible and digestible and palatable for European uh, audiences and also excite newer generations into Kurdishness. And um, yeah, also, for example, this domestication and colonization idea is interesting because, so in a sense, they domesticate uh, the Kurdish struggle um, to Europeans, but foreignized only some aspects. I talk about this. Um, yeah, I mean, so they, they kind of were able to be flexible in whom they told what. And by using some of the concepts from translation studies, I was um, able to kind of trace and identify their uh, activities. I mean, the European, uh, sorry, the utopian angle of the uh, Rojava revolution, quote, uh, as it's uh, called by activists, for example, very much foreignized the struggle for non-Kurds <laughs> at the utopian angle, for example. But other aspects of, of it, um, what's going on in Rojava, especially with regard to women, very much um, and kind of allowed Europeans to create affinities uh, with Kurds. And uh, this is very interesting because you're talking about the uh, Kurdish uh, diaspora here, and you say um, they are an example of transnational indigeneity. What does that mean, and how are Kurds an example of the same? Thank you very much. Um, um, this is a concept I had to some extent um, uh, developed in a previous uh, publication. So here I kind of was able to br uh, bring it out a bit more. Now, what it's in in a you know way saying is that diasporic activism uh, for Kurds has increased indigeneity themes and claims made by Kurds, and in so doing, it has made their indigeneity transnational. So transnational indigeneity is a bit of an oxymoron in a sense, right? Transnationalism is to do with crossing boundaries and uh, rootlessness and so on. And then indigeneity is about rootedness and locality and so on. So by bringing those two concepts, in a sense, I'm challenging both indigeneity and transnationalism uh, as, as concepts uh, that we use them. But also saying something to Kurdish uh, studies. Um, so Kurdish diaspora, well, Kurdish studies and to diaspora studies. Now, Kurdish diaspora typically is constructed within nation-centric discourses. They are tied to homeland politics, or at best, maybe nation-state politics, you know, in the Middle East. But in a sense, it's very, very difficult to understand Kurds and Kurdish diaspora without an awareness of the role of various empires that have dominated the area, Ottoman, French, and British empires, the reorganization of the borders, the empire's consolidation of populations, and the various ethnic and religious alliances that were constructed. So, if we um, don't, uh, if we don't acknowledge this empire dimension, if we continue to ignore it, uh, then uh, we can't uh, kind of we're not able to understand Kurdish diaspora properly, in my view. Whereas my research acknowledges this empire dimension and is able to place Kurdish diaspora and its activities within the global south 
kind of perspective. I, I say that we need to think of them as global south and the global north in some ways. And, and therefore, we need to identify and unpack Kurdish indigenous and decolonial discourses. I mean, like I said, most of the discussion on Kurds continues to frame them in the language of 20th century nation states, or sometimes in, notion, in the notion of statelessness. For example, people say they are the biggest people without a, a state and so on. But I think these sorts of approaches locks them into a very state-centric worldview and understanding, rather than their claims being understood as an indigenous group. They are spread over different nation states. They have alternative claims and conceptualizations of sovereignty and citizenship. And the, um, and, and as such, just like other indigenous groups, they challenge their sovereignty claims, very much challenge the world order, which is very much predicated on nation states. Um, and, and yeah, so in that sense, I, I think uh, they're an interesting example of this uh, phenomena that I uh, called, you know, transnational uh, indigeneity, bringing both indigeneity and transnationality together. Yeah. Um, if I've understood uh, this point correctly, you have argued that the rise of nativism in Europe with the likes of UKIP and AFD in Germany and around the world, uh, and we have several examples, we have Trump in the US, we have Bolsonaro in Brazil, we have Modi in India, is, is not a response to the crisis of new migrants, but this is closely linked with the resentment towards settled diasporas and against the measures that have challenged exclusive nationalism. But since your book has published, we have also seen the rise of Georgia Meloni in Italy, uh, who is very clearly against the new migrants. And we have also seen Suela Braverman in the UK, who is uh, coming from uh, the diaspora community, but is also positioned against the new mig migrants. Would you agree that these two contradict your thesis or, or, or how would you respond to that? Thank you very much. Uh, really uh, a good uh, challenging question. And I have been thinking about this myself too. So I'll first take up the uh, example of Hudi Suela Breverman, I think you mentioned. Yeah. So, <coughs> sorry. Suela Breverman and other ethnic minorities. So we had conservative British ministers, for example, Priti Patel, yeah. Kemi Badenok, Kwasi Kwarteng, and so on. It is argued that um, uh, they pursue policies which enable actually white upper class interests. So they are not decolonizing, I agree. Uh, but my argument was never that all diasporas uh, decolonize. It's kind of the other way around. That decolonization it is one of the things that diasporas do and can do. And we need to flag this uh, role and account for it in our theorization and conceptualization of diaspora. And, um, and the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that, you know, we, we had that kind of discussion to how come, you know, these people from a migrant background, uh, what's going on? They are people of color. They are pursuing policies which are enabling white upper class interests. But I think this arises um, because we have typically divorced conceptualizations of class from colonialism, and they have kept class and race as separate categories, which prevents us seeing 
that people of color also hold class interests. As people of color are not typically conceptualized as having a class, you know, they have color, of course. As race does not typically appear in our articulations of class consciousness, it typically leaves people kind of surprised as to how and why some people of color pursue different class interests. So I think uh, it's uh, uh, really interesting, but I think that's more of an intervention into our understandings of uh, the class-race nexus uh, uh, in some sense. And I'm discussing this in a newer uh, publication. But definitely uh, there will be plenty of examples of uh, uh, people who claim to be a diaspora who pursue uh, the opposite of what we can call decolonizing interventions. But that doesn't take away from the fact that many other diasporas uh, do decolonizing and therefore should be uh, part and parcel of our theorizing. You also mentioned uh, Meloni, and I think there your point, correct me if I understood it wrongly, her, her, her main campaign was very much organized around being anti-migrant, uh, you mentioned, yeah. So, so in the book, uh, I discussed these kind of, um, the rise of nativisms and populisms and authoritarianism, let's say Meloni, Trump, uh, ADF, Swedish Democrats and others, um, but also the mobilizations around leave vote in UK Brexit uh, debates. And I discussed them under the title Backlash to Diaspora, because I also notice that there's a backlash to the interventions and demands for equality that diasporas have brought, especially to the global north, not only. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is, look, it would be a mistake to narrowly conceive current, past, and future nativisms and also migrations and movements uh, uh, to the global north as being limited to the crisis in, on new migrants, on what people call unprecedented migrations, right? Notwithstanding their importance, however, so I'm not saying, of course, new migrations, you know, there are concerns and so on, all about that, and these contribute to nativist and populist uh, authoritarian uh, politics and activism, but we shouldn't just reduce it to that. This is because those sorts of nativist sentiments are very much also closely linked to resentments towards people who are settled diasporas of color in the global north. The various decolonizations and translations that they have brought in the last at least 50 plus years, their demands for equality and so on. So I think we need to kind of really account for how, you know, people couch it in the language of new migrations only, but if we look closely, we can identify discourses which show that nativist sentiments are also closely linked to resentments towards existing diasporas of color and their demands. The unprecedented is interesting because you're based in Germany. I hope I uh, can say that a little bit. It's kind of interesting, but I mean, in, in, in all of Europe, like I'm kind of putting this as a footnote, <clears throat> we had, um, you know, people say we have unprecedented migrations and so on. But I'd like to invite everyone to think about how in the history of Europe, we have had migrations from Europe 
that have been much bigger in numbers, but also with much more compared to the existing populations at least. We had much more detrimental impact on the indigenous populations of migrations from Europe to elsewhere. Think of all the white settler societies, continents in fact, USA, Australia, South Africa, Canada, parts of uh, Latin America and so on. So we can only call these recent migrations to Europe unprecedented if we don't know our history, of course. And this was raised in um, uh, Mabelin um, and Turner's book and also by uh, Bahambra and Homewood in their book. So I think it's really important we kind of take this uh, unprecedented with a pinch of salt and, and kind of really place it within the history of uh, well, world history and European history. Yeah. In the book, I kind of, to talk about this backlash to diaspora, um, which is against, as I said, established, settled uh, groups, not just like against new migrants arriving in boats and so on and so forth. I do unpack two discourses of exclusive nationalism. So one I call anti-multiculturalism, and the other one, the rise of left behind or ordinary working class idea. And, and I argue that these are um, these discourses I identify around, uh, about them are examples of refusal to be treated equal with diasporas of color. So it's resistance to accepting diasporas of color as equal citizens. You know, and the multiculturalism is interesting. So you can be a critical of multiculturalism. There are different forms it takes, and you know, you know, you can think about them, how to integrate, and how, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But the anti-multiculturalism debate is something that's different, because um, I identified as a discourse about diasporas of color that don't know their own place, right? Who no longer know their place. So anti-multiculturalism and criticism of multiculturalism are uh, different. So an anti-multiculturalism is not necessarily against diversity either. I mean, if you think about it, European empires were diverse, right? So it's not diversity that these people are against. It's that they're against being treated as equal with others, others whom they don't deem as equal citizens. And um, so they hark back to kind of assimilationist themes and so on. And it's kind of interesting when Merkel said multiculturalism is dead, right? Multiculturalism is dead. And um, a comedian, British comedian, Andy Zaltzman, uh, recently said, you know, well, you've tried uh, homoculturalism in Germany and we saw what happened there. So it's kind of interesting to then think about, well, by being a critic, what, what do you mean there? But um, I'm not saying Merkel herself was part of that anti-multiculturalism discourse I see, but there were certainly elements of it. And the other one is, of course, this revival of this concept. I don't know if you have an equivalent uh, in Germany, the discourse of left behind. So there are people who are left behind in our country, and therefore um, we need to kind of consider them and take care of them. But at least as it's used in the UK and US, um, what, what we can see that this is actually a code word. It's a code word not for thinking about poverty and inequality in these countries, but it's a code word for valorizing working classes who are white. So the left behind is also used interchangeably with phrases such as traditional, quote, working class 
What does that mean? New migrants who are working class are not included into it, right? Or ordinary working class. So what does that mean? Again, uh, new uh, uh, migrants or uh, settled diasporas of color who are poor, they're not kind of included into those conceptualizations. And these concepts are used even in the Labour Party sometimes in UK, and it's, they are used in the media and also in academia. And I think what is important for diaspora studies to uh, do is to recognize how such discourses very much write diasporas of color and new migrants who constitute a large section of the working class. Uh, working class is the most ethnically diverse group in many countries in UK and others too. But it writes them out of the narrative of the story of working class, of country and of Europe. You know, because you could easily, if class and poverty inequalities were your concern, you could concern yourself with working class communities of all groups, you know. And but it seems more concerned about whiteness, this the way in which this concept left behind traditional working class, etc., is employed. And the implication here is that white nationals. They are the natural and ordinary citizens, so they need to be prioritized in schools, health, and welfare provision. Right? There is an implication, therefore, that arises from that. So I hope that I was able to also consider such current contemporary uh, backlash that we see to the decolonization efforts that diasporas bring in the book. Absolutely. Uh, since we're at the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you, what do you hope the readers take from this book? Or what do you hope changes in the future, if you're allowed to be ideal here? Yeah, thank you. So I hope, uh, oh, that's a big question. Uh, I hope <laughs> a decolonial approach should force us to understand diaspora differently, differently to the way that we have typically understood. And therefore, I hope the book uh, will inspire or get people thinking about uh, diaspora, especially those people who wish to develop a decolonial perspective to diaspora in particular, but migration in general, of course, but also seek to recognize how diasporas are uh, primary agents of decolonization in the global north. And therefore, we need to stop hemming in or limiting diasporas to this nation-centric understandings, which ends up valorizing or overly focusing on diaspora homeland politics at the expense of everything else. I'm not saying let's not do that. I do it even myself in my research, but that's not the only thing we should do. And we should also stop hemming diasporas to notions of hybridity and cosmopolitanism and valorize this in-betweenness and lack of roots kind of approach, because we need to also see diasporas as, in a sense, agents of change in the new home as agents of globalization, decolonization, and uh, intervention. So I hope it can, um, therefore, shift our understandings of uh, diaspora to include these more radical aspects and take it further. Um, if I could also talk, I know uh, it, it may be a little too soon because your book was published this year, but uh, I'd like to ask also about your future projects. What are you working on right now? What can we hope to read from you in the future? Um, thank you very much. Uh, I um, I have uh, two things that uh, kind of inspired me to go on, you know, like the next step from the book. So one of them was that I, even though I, I focus on 
Kurdish diaspora and use kind of the rich empirical fieldwork that I had uh, carried out, the data. Uh, in the book, I hadn't really uh, looked at case studies of decolonization of other groups uh, in detail. I do mention them and I give some examples. But what I've done uh, since the book is to write uh, about how, um, you know, diasporas have made transnational and intersectional uh, interventions. And I look at two, uh, two of these. One is the Bristol bus boycott and the other one is the Groundwick uh, dispute. And I discuss them in general. I also kind of bring a more gendered intersectional approach to understanding diaspora, something I hadn't done in the book. I've also started to think about uh, how, um, you know, how teaching can be improved, how we need to teach the race and um migrations and so on differently, of course, as a result of these sorts of centering of decoloniality in our research. But I've also gone <laughs> and and kind of written a chapter on how uh, we need to change, sh- kind of shift our understanding and teaching of sociology, other concepts in sociology as well. So I, I look at the challenge that race and decoloniality present to teaching of sociology. I think it's not just limited to sociology, but that's what the book is about. But I do discuss concepts such as coloniality of gender. I discuss concepts such as coloniality of class and coloniality of migration. In other words, I try to show how gender, class, and migration, these notions need to be kind of rethought in the context of um, Uh, empires and how we need to, like even the race and class example that I gave earlier, we need to kind of bring them into better conversation with race and coloniality. And uh, yeah, so I'm also interested in how uh, new migrants from the periphery of Europe, how they uh, negotiate whiteness in Europe. So especially those, uh, so for example, new Turks uh, from uh, Turkey, you know, new groups have arrived in Europe in the last five years. They had like more, they're more educated, have higher cultural, social, economic um, capital. And uh, it's interesting because their negotiations with white nationals is different to, let's say, previous migrations from Turkey to Europe. And and therefore, I'm interested in how they are, quote, in on the cusp of whiteness, but they're not so much white. So I'm interested in these kind of negotiations of new migrants to Europe and and the established hierarchies, racial hierarchies that exist in Europe and whether they challenge those hierarchies or do they kind of join in with the dominant group to benefit from, for example, proximity to whiteness. So those are some of my uh, new ideas and I'd like to explore them in future research. That does sound uh, like wonderful projects. Thank you, Professor Demi, for taking the time out to talk to me. Thank you.